Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you from the Edmond, Oklahoma campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College. You can listen to this radio station, KPCG, anytime online at kpcg.fm. Well, as I mentioned there, the college where we're broadcasting is named Herbert W. Armstrong College. The reason for this is because of a man who God used to do a powerful work, a work that reached around the world. Mr. Armstrong delivered a life-changing message of hope to millions and millions of people, including dozens of world leaders, people from all walks of life, Every type of background and belief system could relate to him and could see the value in his message. But his training in this way of life, this lifelong labor of love, began long before he started reaching the world. He really started getting around the world in the 70s and 80s before he died in 1986. But long before that, he was dealing with the Sardis era of God's church. He came on the scene in Oregon and came into contact with God's one true church. But as Revelation chapter 3 describes, that, that fifth church era, the Sardis era, was dead. You see, you can see that in Revelation 3, verse 1. There was no discernible work, no message going out to the world as a witness to them. God always warns before any type of punishment comes. He always provides hope for those who are suffering so they can see beyond that present suffering to a much better future. And the way he's done this for the past two millennia is through his church. God's one true church is meant to deliver a message. This work has to be motivated by total unselfishness and love. Reaching out, to a world full of billions of people we don't even know and yet in the future will know. So the Philadelphia Church of God today, specifically Pastor General Gerald Flurry, is delivering that message, is building upon what God did through Mr. Armstrong in the 20th century. But again, Mr. Armstrong was dealing with a dead church. God used one man 
to make his church come alive again. In chapter 34 of the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, available to you for free at our website, thetrumpet.com, Mr. Armstrong writes about the steady growth of the work in Eugene, Oregon. This was in 1934, 1935. And at this time, Mr. Armstrong had groups of followers, supporters, maybe not officially a church yet, but pretty much it was. But these different groups of people were meeting 10, 15 miles apart in different locations at the Jeans School in Eugene, in Alvador. And it just made sense for them to all be together in one place. That's not a huge distance apart. Now, back then, without the advanced modes of travel that we now enjoy, it was a little bit more difficult, but still definitely worthwhile for the brethren at this time to make sure they had one place where they could meet. And what makes this story so fascinating is that the Church of God, the Oregon Conference of the Church of God, had tried before to have their own church building. It didn't work out so well. Chapter 34 of the autobiography talks about this, how there had been another minister affiliated with that Oregon Conference who essentially ripped off the brethren. He solicited support in terms of donations, in terms of volunteering their skills to help build so that they could put together their own church building. That's not what a church is. A church is a group of people, at least the true church is. But there also has to be a place where the people meet. So this minister, who turned out to be a Protestant, it, it was made clear to Mr. Armstrong, and you can read about that in earlier chapters of his autobiography, that God was not working through any of these other ministers. He was not working through this minister who swindled the brethren and made them partway finish building a church building. That's right. They didn't even finish building it. Sure enough, the building, the partially finished building, was titled in that Protestant minister's name. So not only was Protestantism affecting the Sardis era of God's church in terms of its doctrines, but here literally... God's people were being stolen from. What a shame. Jude 1 verse 4 warned of this millennia ago. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or lawlessness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Protestantism is 
lawless, traditional Christianity, mainstream Christianity believes that the law is done away. God's perfect spiritual law, the Ten Commandments, which Jesus Christ came not to do away with, but to uphold. Actually, that law includes a commandment against lying, against stealing. But if you're lawless, you wouldn't really care about keeping those commandments. This Protestant minister lied to and stole from the brethren. He essentially, as Mr. Armstrong put it, sold them down the river. But thankfully, this minister had actually sold this partially finished church building to somebody else. So what they were able to do was buy this church building from that man. They made this purchase for just $500. So you can, you can see there how quickly inflation has driven up prices over the last century or so. Just $500 for an unfinished building, but still a building with much of the work already done. It wouldn't cost anywhere near just $500 today. And Mr. Armstrong had to be very careful about the way this was done. Obviously, the brethren had lost trust in their leaders because this previous minister, before he basically skipped town, stole their money, stole their time as they worked on the building too. So Mr. Armstrong took great care to approach this situation with wisdom. The church had those three groups in Oregon. They needed a place to meet. This building was already partially done. They got it for a reasonable price. Mr. Armstrong just had to make sure not to put the building in his own name. He didn't want the brethren to be scared of a repeat of what happened with that Protestant minister. And then they just kept on working. They kept on building. They kept on donating. Kept on volunteering until the building was done. So finally, these three groups of brethren in Oregon had one place to gather for Sabbath services. June 1st, 1935, the Church of God at Eugene, Oregon held its first service. A big moment in the history of God's church. God's work was steadily growing starting on that tiny radio station with just a small reach through the Willamette Valley in Oregon, expanding to a half-hour Sunday broadcast time, starting the Plain Truth magazine with just a few hundred copies produced by hand, by the way. And then these public appearance campaigns, first for three nights a week, then for six nights a week. 
at a couple different spots in Oregon. And because of these campaigns, more people committed to following God and they wanted that power of God's Holy Spirit, which was the way that Mr. Armstrong was able to be so effective in preaching the truth in the first place. They wanted to follow that example. So because of the fruits of radio and writing and public speaking, people were coming around to God's truth and they needed a place to meet. And finally, they got an unfinished building and finished it and started meeting there on June 1st, 1935. And right away, <laughs> Mr. Armstrong put that building to good use, starting again another six-night-a-week public appearance campaign based in their own church building now. Not having to rent out halls, but having their own location. Now, these meetings did make an incredible impact. There is one example here that really stands out. This lady who attended one of these lectures from Mr. Armstrong actually attended just to make fun of what she heard. She thought she and her friends could have a good laugh about it afterward. <laughs> That's not exactly how it worked out. She was an atheist. Page 471 relays her saying, or at least I thought I was when I came here tonight, but now I feel myself slipping. She said she thought she was going to be hearing some ignorant medieval religious superstition. <laughs> That's usually how it works. And to be fair, a lot of religion today is empty. It's not backed up by real practical action, putting God's love into action by keeping his law. God's law is a law of love. And when these various churches teach that the law is done away, they're essentially saying, don't practice God's way of love. Why would you need to do that? What's the point? And the obvious result is that these churches aren't showing or reflecting God's love. They're not a shining light to the world like they could be because they're simply not putting God's way into action. What good are flowery words by themselves? If people just talk and talk and talk, and don't do a thing to back it up. But Mr. Armstrong spoke with special power. Power, again, given to him by God through the Holy Spirit. Mr. Armstrong had the power from God to change minds and hearts. Really, 
to help people change their lives. Ultimately, even help them save their own lives. If they wanted to, if God wanted them to at the time. Now this, this atheist admitted page 472 of the autobiography available to you for free again at the trumpet.com, the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, just chock full of examples that apply to us directly, even though these things took place almost a century ago. So page 472, this atheist admitted, it is not like any religious teaching I ever heard. I want to ask you some questions. You see, that is the type of impact God's truth can have. And that is why God's work tries so hard to make the truth available in as many mediums, through as many outlets as possible. We really want as many people as possible, the largest audience possible, to come across the Key of David television program with Mr. Gerald Flurry, the Trumpet Daily with Mr. Stephen Flurry, the Trumpet Hour program, the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine, all the other shows here on KPCG, the Royal Vision Magazine, Watch Jerusalem, True Education. Every time I list all of that off, I am reminded once again and amazed once again at how much truth there really is. And that's not even taking into account the entire vast literature library available at thetrumpet.com. Just so much truth flooding our minds if we let it. And naturally, what happens when we come across this kind of truth is we have a lot of questions. If we have an open mind, it's exciting to hear God's truth. And we want to follow up. We want to learn more. That's what this atheist who attended Mr. Armstrong's lecture was experiencing. Now, the funny thing was... She was actually the secretary of the local communist party. <laughs> Page 40, 472. She resigned from the communist party forthwith. That's a pretty big change in somebody's life. It doesn't get much more godless and lawless and evil than communism and yet, hearing one lecture from Mr. Armstrong inspired this woman to stop being a communist and stop being an atheist. But this woman had a friend who thought that he could absolutely dominate any debate regarding whether God exists. Her friend, of course, was another communist, another atheist. He was full of intellectual vanity. 
he had that dangerous mix of arrogance and ignorance, which we see so often today. People voicing strong opinions when they have no idea what they're talking about and haven't even bothered to do five minutes of their own research. But this man wanted to humiliate a preacher. Here's page 472. This woman says, he said he would like to meet that weak-brained idiot of a preacher that hypnotized me into believing foolish superstitions. He said that he would prove that evolution is true and there is no God by making a monkey out of you. So I grabbed his arm and said, come right along. Mr. Armstrong's office is just across the street. Now this woman, this former atheist communist, knew what would happen, so she wanted a front row seat. She knew that her her fellow or former fellow communist friend would have no answer to Mr. Armstrong's Bible-based approach. But Mr. Armstrong also knew how to fight in the arena of the person he was trying to convince. In the case of an atheist, how much credibility do you think it would be it would give Mr. Armstrong if he quoted the Bible? Atheists don't believe the Bible. They don't care what the Bible says. They have to be convinced on their grounds. They have to see it from the, the science angle. Now, science does affirm what the Bible says. But you have to start with the science first when trying to convince an atheist. They will not listen to you for five seconds if, you're, if you start out quoting the Bible. So Mr. Armstrong drew this man into a trap. He made this man admit that science itself proved there had been no past eternity of matter. In other words, there was a time when all things physical didn't even exist. Mr. Armstrong made this man admit that life could only come from life. Which means there had to be a first cause possessing life, able to impart life to all living organisms. Page 473. Now this is the part that atheists hate trying to explain. Evolutionists, atheists, the first cause they can get life back to the tiniest particle of matter, but they absolutely cannot explain where that particle came from. Someone like Richard Dawkins is even willing to claim that somehow aliens created everything we know on Earth or in the universe. You see, a superior life form, 
but he doesn't want to say God. They don't want to submit to God. That's what it comes down to. That's the whole reason they're in denial about the creator God. They don't want to hear what he has to say because if he exists, that means they also have to obey him. Page 473, Mr. Armstrong says, something less intelligent than your mind could never have produced your mind. So just as we're incapable as humans of creating anything superior to us, even though certain robots and computers are certainly quite impressive, God also, or we also couldn't be created by anyone who is inferior to us. Our creator has to be vastly superior to us. The fact that we were created at all means that the creator has to be superior to us. Just like everything we create or plan or build or design is by definition inferior to us because we created it. So Mr. Armstrong reduced this man to a stumbling, pitiful defeat. He said, I won't worship God even if you do make me admit he had he exists. That's the sad reality of human nature, how hard it is for us to admit we're wrong. It was the most painful thing Mr. Armstrong ever had to do in his entire life. Admit that his entire way of thinking, his entire set of priorities was wrong and that God was right. But why continue to live a way of life that you know is wrong and believe certain things that you know are wrong? That is just hard for me to even grasp. But it, it always gets down to rebellion, of course. Mr. Armstrong met this man again a few weeks later, and this man said, I'll never bend my knees to your Christ Mr. Armstrong replied, oh, yes, you will. There is a judgment day coming for you, and the creator that lets you breathe says every knee shall bow to Christ, even if he has to break the bones of your legs. You see, that's coming. There will be a point where we have to make the right choice. God gives humans a very long time to go their own way and rebel and be miserable for it. But at some point, if humans insist on rebelling forever and being miserable forever, God simply won't allow it. He's not going to allow people to experience eternal life in agony and misery like Satan and the demons do. And so people will either obey or be put out of their misery. Now that is still yet in the future. People are not experiencing that just at this time, but they will soon. 
Now, chapter thir- 34 of the autobiography is also pretty special because it explains how Mr. Armstrong approached his first opportunity to officiate a wedding ceremony. If you've ever been to a wedding in God's church, whether the Worldwide Church of God in the past or in the Philadelphia Church of God today, you know how unique it is. I went to one a few weeks ago where the the groom's relatives were there, a lot of them not members of the church. And I was talking to one of his cousins about that experience of hearing what the minister said during that ceremony. And he did say it was very unique, very special, nothing like anything he's ever heard before. And you know, it does come straight out of the Bible. It really does. Ephesians chapter five, showing that a man is supposed to lead and love. A woman is supposed to follow and respect. There are clearly defined roles within marriage. God invented marriage. He writes down for us how to do it right. And when we do it right, we are so overwhelmed by happiness. Mr. Armstrong writes about his first time ever officiating a marriage or a wedding. Page 475. Everyone thought it was the most beautiful wedding ceremony they had ever seen. God's ways are beautiful. Now to this day, God's church follows the same script laid out by Mr. Armstrong back in 1935. Chapter 34 of the autobiography concludes with Mr. Armstrong transitioning from not paying any rent to moving into a different building out of necessity and paying $5 per month in rent. It was a room with no windows and it was very smoky because of some meetings held in the building where the men would smoke and then the smoke would drift into Mr. Armstrong's office. So he couldn't even be in his office for very long because it was not very fresh air. And he had to wait for perhaps the smoke to clear out and then go back in there again. But it just reminds us how God's work always starts small. It always starts humble. There are some inconveniences at times. It's not always the most comfortable life. Yet God always provided and worked miracles and blessed Mr. Armstrong for his faith. And this was where they put together those first issues of the Plain Truth News magazine, giving people a biblical perspective on world events, on social events, explaining the Bible, explaining the truth about marriage and family, our incredible human potential. Now notice what they did for every issue of the Plain Truth magazine. Page 477. Mrs. Armstrong and I were able to carry the entire mailing of the mimeographed plain truth in our arms 
across the street to the post office. And before we did, we always knelt and prayed over them, laying our hands on all the copies, asking God to bless them and those who receive them. That is something very important for us to pray about that God's message falls on fertile ground, on open minds, on clear thinking minds, on people who are humble and teachable and could have a chance to really put that truth into action. So really just a beautiful chapter here of the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, full of so many stories, many that I have hardly even heard about before, uh, except for the times that I've read it myself. A lot of these stories are not as commonly talked about, and yet they're all very impactful, very worthwhile to read. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time 